This is a memorable scene in a classic piece of literature that uh, comes to mind whenever I think of ministry in a local church, and uh, I've shared this with some of you before, but it's a scene which many of us likely have read in our earlier years uh, without paying much attention to it. It's a scene that I've described uh, on occasions, a familiar tale of youthful fantasy. Uh, Lewis Carroll has crafted this event in which we all have become participants at some point in our lives where we have reached crossroads of decisions. This particular event is found in the famous story of Alice's adventures in Wonderland and through the looking glass. And as the scene unfolds, Alice is unsure of, of which direction that she's going to take in her journey. And seeing a Cheshire cat sitting in the bow of a nearby tree, she asks rather timidly, would you tell me please which way I should go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. Well, I don't care much where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. Well, so long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, the cat said, you're sure to do that if you just only walk long enough. As it was with Alice, so often it is with us and the Church of Jesus Christ, because without clear objectives, we will have virtually no destination in sight and will wander aimlessly through life. A church without objectives is doomed to a life on a treadmill, wouldn't you say? And going through all the motions of walking and expending large amounts of energy, uh, yet in reality, really gets nowhere. I heard a uh, pastor one time say that a lot of churches resemble a merry-go-round. There's a lot of up and down motion, but it just keeps going around in a circle. Now, I know in the depth of my being that Christ wants his people to do more than simply run in place. It is, in fact, if Christ is the head of the church, which he is, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2, then we are compelled to follow Christ's lead. Is that right? Because he has a clear objective for us. Whatever time and space and history that we're in, Webster defines an objective as something toward which effort is directed, an aim, a goal, or end of action. Jesus, when he walked among us, knew exactly where he was going, as a matter of fact, and he knew precisely how he was going to get there. And he still does, I believe. Do you believe that? He left us with an example to follow in the gospel accounts, a model to imitate. Matthew chapter 10 and verses 24 and 25, Jesus said these fantastic words that we would do well to remember. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave his master. And in John chapter 13, in verses 16 and 17, he said similar words. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Neither, the one, uh, neither is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And he followed that up with, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. The general mission of our church must be the same as the mission of its head. Would you say that's correct? Because Jesus plainly prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 
Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. So in the same way that he was sent out by his father, Jesus has sent us out as his disciples. Therefore, it is critical that we understand what his ministry is about if we're to undertake our ministry. Does that make sense to you? Years ago, when I was first called to this church, the leaders of Fayette Baptist Church and I at that time developed a clear mission and purpose statement, which I believe is directly derived from the pages of the New Testament. As you leave this church, if you leave out that door, it's posted on the wall of the foyer out there. I don't know how many times people walk by that, but probably never read it. It's, a, it's posted as a reminder that this is what we're about as individuals and as a corporate church body. When you and I walk out that door as disciples of Jesus Christ and as participating members of Christ's body, those, these are the ministry directives that we are supposed to be engaged in all the time. Not just when we're together as a congregation, but as a habit of life. Do you know what that mission and purpose is? Over the years, I've tried to regularly revisit this topic because as your pastor, I know that we all need a fresh reminder of what we're supposed to be about. It's too easy to get caught up in the daily stuff of life, and especially now, right? And forget that there's a higher calling than, let's say, to get up, to go to work, to shuttle the kids around, cook meals, do laundry, fix cars, write emails, go to the gym, change diapers, get to a meeting, answer the phone, keep tabs on your kids' progress at school, fix the faucet, read your Bible, watch the news, find time to pray, have meaningful conversations with your spouse and your children, go to the bathroom, fall into bed, and start the whole thing all over again. Right? Except we're not doing that now. Is that what our lives are supposed to be about? No. Is that what our lives was it supposed to be about? Because I think that God's changing that. For the most part, that is what our lives became pre-COVID-19, isn't it? Now, let me, let me just make a couple of personal comments here. That was not freedom. Let me say that again. That was not freedom. That was bondage, slavery, like the Israelites in Egypt, and God had to deliver them from that. As a matter of fact, he actually had to send plagues to do it. But they never learn to appreciate the deliverance. And that's what I want you to see. They never learn to appreciate the deliverance. They were stubborn. Once they were in the desert and it got a bit old and a bit uncomfortable for them, all they wanted to do was go back to Egypt. To the way it was before to slavery. They didn't like how or where God was taking them in this new direction and what new horizons God was trying to build for them. In fact, they dug in their heels so far in that they actually began to prefer the shackles of their old ways instead of, over, they were preferring them over the promised future and freedom that God was preparing them for. 
In Numbers chapter 11, in verse 4, we read these words, And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna, God's provision, God's miraculous provision. You see, they weren't free in Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt. Verse 10 says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Does that sound familiar? But you see, the real reason for God's anger against their murmurings was not their greedy desire for meat or their questions about what God was doing, but it was because of their dissatisfaction and disillusionment with God, his gracious provision to them, and their preference to go back into slavery again. All they did was complain at God and about the leaders. Let me ask you a question. Is that why Christ saved you? Is that why Christ saved us? No. Isn't there a greatest, greater calling in which he wants us involved? Isn't there an enduring objective for what, which we have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son? Yes, there is. And we have put that into words, and it's right out there on that door. Our mission is to introduce people to Jesus Christ and invite them to become his committed followers, to incorporate those followers into a local body, inspiring them to grow to spiritual maturity and equipping them to influence the world for Christ, to involve them in the work of the ministry, and above all things, to invest ourselves and our resources for the service and the glory of God. Amen? In short, we're to be about the business of introducing people to Jesus Christ and helping them to become his committed followers. That's the short version. Now, why am I reminding us of this fact? Well, because I'm concerned that when Jesus returns, you know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see him find that there is faith on the earth, and especially in Fayette, Maine. Amen? That come COVID-19 or high water, we can be brilliantly engaged in that ministry that we're called to, whether we are meeting in a building or not meeting in a building. That we can do it either with a mask on or without a mask on. That we understand clearly that six feet of distance will not stop the spread of the gospel of grace nor curtail our ability to worship God in spirit and in truth. Is that, is that right? And it's not going to curtail our ability to, to worship God or love our neighbors as ourselves. It's far too easy to get sidetracked, especially today, from that mission and I, for one, need this reminder right now because I'm as susceptible to getting sidetracked as anybody is. And I'm guessing you need that message as much as I do. Because there's a much discussion today surrounding the task and the purpose of the church these days. 
a proliferation of articles and social media posts and blogs alternately decrying and delineating what her mission should and should not entail. They bombard us from every side at an incomprehensible rate. My mind just cannot take it all in. And and every any given day, I get emails that say, oh, you need to watch this video or read this article or, or watch that YouTube thing. And I'm like, if I had enough hours in the day to process all of this stuff? And God is constantly pounding on my heart saying, I got something for you to read. It's right here. See, even in our own midst, there's this widespread dialogue and even some disagreement on what the focus of our ministry should be and how it should be conducted. Awash in all of this, I fear, is the sound and the simple thrust of Jesus' mandate as revealed through his life and by his words. So where should we begin? Well, I think it might sound quite elementary to you. But I really think sometimes we we, we have a tendency to miss the obvious, right? If we're followers of Christ, then we ought to be following what Jesus does and listening to what Jesus says. Amen? And I think this is true. Undertaking the ministry of the church means understanding the ministry of Christ. It's that simple. I read something in a blog some time ago that was quite convicting. Let me ask you. uh, Rhetorical question, but you see if you can answer this question, okay? Okay. Are you a student or a disciple? What's the difference? A student wants to know what his teacher knows. A disciple wants to be what his teacher is. So what kind of church does God want us to be during these days of COVID-19 and beyond as it relates to the whole range of Christ's mission? I don't think it's any different now than ever was. The application may look a lot different, but I think the critical point that is emerging here is how badly we need to reorient ourselves to what we've always been called and commissioned to. And the best place to begin is where Jesus began at the announcement of his own public ministry to the world. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to look at a little uh, a text here in Luke chapter 4. And uh, let me begin by reading the first two verses of the text we're going to be considering. In, in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee. Okay, where is he returning from? He's returning from the desert. We just spent two weeks talking about the temptation of Jesus in the desert, right? I did that for a purpose because that was the preparation for Jesus, 40 days in the desert, fasting, praying, being tempted by the devil. And now he returned to Galilee. How? In the power of the Spirit. Do you remember after his baptism, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to wander around and fast for 40 days. I think it was interesting, those 40 days of wandering in the wilderness desert. I just thought of it this morning, but it corresponds a little bit to like every year the Israelites wandered in the desert and wah, 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 whined at God, right? But Jesus didn't whine at God. Jesus passed the test. 
And so now he returns to Galilee in the same power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. A little background in order here. According to the teacher and scholar Ray Vanderlaan, who has given us some incredible insight into the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, the people of Galilee were the most religious Jews in the world at the time of Jesus. The Galilean people were actually more educated in the Bible and its application than most Jews. More famous Jewish teachers came from Galilee than anywhere else in the world. They were known for their great reverence for Scripture and passionate desire to be faithful to it. This translated into vibrant religious communities devoted to strong families, their country whose synagogue echoed the debate and discussions about keeping the Torah. They resisted the pagan influences of Hellenism for more than, uh, far more than did their Judean counterparts. It was into this world that Jesus came as a child and eventually came as a rabbi. Jesus was born, he grew up and spent his ministry among people who knew scripture by memory, who debated its application with enthusiasm and who loved God with all their hearts, all their souls and all their might. God prepared this environment carefully so that Jesus would have exactly the context he needed to present his message about the kingdom of heaven. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read as was his custom. Synagogue attendance was expected of every devout Jew. Jesus attended synagogue regularly. He knew the importance of gathering together for worship and for teaching. Anyone considered suitable to the ruler of the synagogue was privileged and encouraged to deliver the message, the sermon. And Jesus was given this opportunity. So he stood up and he unrolled the scroll and read from the prophet Isaiah in this text. Jesus went through the steps that any Jew would concerning the liturgy of the service. Their service began with several blessings offered to God, followed by a recitation of the Shema. You know what the Shema is, right? In Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one Lord. The Torah scrolls were brought out by the Kazan and read in several portions, sometimes as many as seven. Readers could not choose those passages themselves as readings were assigned according to a predetermined schedule. Look at verse 17 here. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Following the Torah reading, a section from the prophets called the Haftarah was read. And then a sermon or the Derashah would be offered. Often by the same person who read the Torah and the Haftarah, these sermons were usually quite short, as Luke chapter 4 and verse 21 shows. Verse 21 says, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Jesus spoke only a few words when he gave the derasha. And because he spoke with God's authority, many people recognized Jesus as a rabbi with smicha. One of the few exceptional rabbis with authority to teach with their own interpretation of the text. That's what that means, smicha. Not many rabbis had that. Now, as Matthew chapter 7 records, the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. And most of the teachers were Torah teachers, teachers of the law, who could only teach accepted interpretations of the day. Those with authority could make new interpretations and pass legal judgments. Crowds were amazed because Jesus taught with smicha, authority. Or the Greek word for that is exousia, and that's what's used in the, in the Gospels. Because Jesus taught with that authority, not as their Torah teachers, as it says in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus was questioned about his authority, you remember, by the Pharisees, who gave you this authority to do these things? And that's what they were questioning. So Jesus stood up in this synagogue to, to read the scriptures. And he read from Isaiah chapter 1. And he read down to verse 2. But he stopped halfway through verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah says, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book. But the rest of that verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. But Jesus didn't read that part. And there's a reason for that. Because that was not Jesus' mission at this point in time. You got to know what your mission is and what your mission isn't. Amen? So this is instructive here. Verse 21, Jesus said today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, fulfilling the Torah was the task of a first-century rabbi, according to Ray Vanderlaan. The technical term for interpreting the scriptures so it would be obeyed correctly was to fulfill. To interpret scripture incorrectly so it would not be obeyed as God intended was actually considered to destroy the Torah. Jesus uses these terms to describe his task well in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus says, I didn't come. I didn't come to do away or destroy the Torah. I came to fulfill it. Now, contrary to what some think, Jesus did not come to do away with that Torah or the Old Testament. He came to complete it and to show how to correctly keep it. One of the ways Jesus interpreted the Torah was to stress the importance of the right attitude of heart as well as the right action of behavior. It all stemmed from the heart attitude. You can look that up in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Look at verse 22 here in Luke 4. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? 
And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Have you ever tried to put yourself in this scene? in that synagogue on that day? Try to imagine what that must have been like. To insert yourself into this controversy, into this event in order to understand what Jesus encountered? Let's try for a moment. Share with you something from one of Philip Yancey's books. In 1993, a news report about a Messiah sighting in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York, hit the streets. 20,000 Lubavitcher Hasidic Jews lived at that time in Crown Heights, and in 1993, many of them believed the Messiah was dwelling among them in Brooklyn. In the person of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, Philip Yancey, in that book, The Jesus I Never Knew, describes this event. He said, the word of the rabbi's public appearance spread like a flash fire through the streets of Crown Heights, and Lubavitchers in their black coats and curly sideburns were soon dashing down the sidewalks toward the synagogue where the rabbi customarily prayed. Those lucky enough to be connected to a network of beepers got a head start sprinting toward the synagogue the instant they felt a slight vibration on their hip. They jammed by the hundreds into the main hill into a main hill, elbowing each other, even climbing the pillars to create more room. And that, that hall, filled with an air of anticipation and frenzy normally found at a championship sporting event. You've been to those events, right? Where it's just crowding. But not a religious service. The rabbi was 91 years old, Okay. He had suffered a stroke the year before and had not been able to speak since. When the curtain finally pulled back, those who had crowded into that synagogue saw a frail old man with a long beard who could do little but wave in a sort of Delphic gesture and move his eyebrows. That's all he could do. No one in the audience seemed to mind, though, Long live our master, our teacher, and our rabbi, King Messiah, forever and ever, they chanted. They sang in unison over and over, building in volume until the rabbi made this small gesture with his hand, and the curtain closed, and that was it. They departed slowly, savoring the moment in a state of ecstasy. By the way, I should tell you, 
that Rabbi Schneerson died in June 1994. And some of them are still waiting for his resurrection. When I first read the news, Philip says, uh, account, I, I nearly laughed out loud, he said. Who are these people trying to kid? A nonagenarian mute messiah in Brooklyn, New York? And then it struck me. He said, I was reacting to Rabbi Schneerson exactly as the people in the first century had reacted to Jesus in this synagogue. A messiah from Galilee? A carpenter's kid? No less. The scorn, he says, I felt as I read about the rabbi and his fanatical followers gave me a clue to the responses Jesus faced throughout his entire life. His neighbors asked, isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers from anyway? His own family tried to put him away. They thought he was crazy, believing he was out of his mind. The religious experts sought to kill him. And as for the whipsaw commoners, one moment they judged him demon-possessed and raving mad, and the next they forcibly tried to crown him as king. Yancey continues, It took courage, I believe, for God to lay aside power and glory and to take a place among human beings who would greet him with the same mixture of haughtiness and skepticism that I felt when I first heard about Rabbi Schneerson of Brooklyn. It took courage to risk descent to a planet known for its clumsy violence among a race known for rejecting its prophets. It took courage for Jesus to stand up in the midst of a powerful tradition and trend of religion and tell them flatly, you are wrong by bypassing the very people that need the truth and therefore I am bypassing you. But he had done it, according to verse 14, by the power of the Holy Spirit. See that? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This crowd was infuriated. They were incensed. Their flaming reaction testifies to the controversy that erupts when the true ministry of Christ is unveiled. I used to think here in this text when I used to read this text that, that as a young believer that people were incensed because Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. That's not the case. I don't believe that. Luke implies that their infuriation was sparked by Jesus' claim that the Messiah's ministry of grace would be extended to the Gentiles, to the tax gatherers, to the sinners, the prostitutes, and outcasts, and actually it would be withheld from the hard-hearted, religion-oriented Jews. That's what incensed them. Friends, the true ministry of Jesus Christ is going to go against the grain of a lot of church people who are caught up in programs and religious structures devoid of God's heart for people. We must take care that we don't forget what Christ's ministry was and really is about. There are at least five things that were essential to Jesus' public ministry to the Gentiles that we must not only understand, but purpose to undertake. 
And we're only going to look at one of them for the remainder of this time, which is not much longer. But for the next few weeks, we're going to look at the other four. And the first thing that I want you to leave here today with is, I've already mentioned it, it's this, is that the power for ministry that Jesus calls us to is the Holy Spirit. Now, remember earlier I told you, you might think this is very elementary, but this is all important. The power for ministry is the Holy Spirit. There were two principles that directed Christ throughout his ministry. He knew the source of his power and he knew the significance of his position. Those two things. And our ministry as a church of Jesus Christ should be permeated by that same powerful presence. We need to know the source of our power. Jesus said, as he read from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And although he was God in the flesh, Jesus did nothing on his own initiative. Get that straight in your mind. John chapter 5, for example, in verse 19, we read these words. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to those to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then in verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Those are so important. Words. Those are very important words. If Jesus had to follow the power of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit and doing his Father's will, and he was God, how much more should we? How much more must we? You see, Jesus relied on the power of the Holy Spirit for absolutely everything, for guidance in his prayer, for strength during his temptation in the desert and the hour of trial in the Garden of Gethsemane, during his sacrifice on the cross and ultimately his resurrection and everything in between his birth and his resurrection. He relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. Throughout his ministry, Christ operated under that power. And Luke repeatedly stresses the place of the Spirit in the life of Jesus in the first four chapters of the Gospel of Luke. At his conception, we read about it. At his baptism, we read about it. At his temptation, we heard about it in the last two weeks. And now at the inauguration of his ministry. You see, God has given us his Spirit for the same exact purpose, that we might follow him and derive our source of strength from that Spirit. As believers, he indwells us permanently. Is that right? In order to empower us and to guide us and deliver us from temptation, his presence gives us power to live sacrificial lives motivated by compelling love for God, both 
eyes for him and him, his for us, and for our neighbor. Are we operating in that sphere? That's the $64,000 question, right? Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16 in the ESV says this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So our ministry should be permeated with a powerful presence, that of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ministry clearly was, and he is our rabbi, amen? Are we willing to follow in the dust of our rabbi? Go back to that question I asked at the beginning. Are you a student or are you a disciple? Because a student only knows, wants to know what his teacher knows. I want to be what my teacher is, do you? And that's a tough one because we all fall so far short and we need his grace. So our ministry should be permeated with a powerful presence and then our ministry like Jesus's should be perceived as a privileged position. Now, we're not the Messiah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. However, we are anointed. Jesus not only knew the source of his power but the significance of his position. He was the Christ. You know what Christ means? anointed one. Messiah. He was anointed by God for his ministry. In the Old Testament, the concept of anointing applied primarily to prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus was the epitome of all three of those things, those positions. Anointing implies being set apart and qualified for a privileged task. The truth is, my friends, that you and I, if we are in Christ, if you've given your life and your heart to Christ, we are similarly anointed by the Spirit. You believe that? That didn't sound good. Do you really believe that? And we have been placed in Christ's body, the church, and empowered for service by that same Spirit. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 20, John writes, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. And then in, in verse 27 of that same chapter, John writes, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing, the Holy Spirit, teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught, you abide in him. What's John saying? That you shouldn't have any teachers? That you can just go off on your own? No, that's not what he's saying at all. Basically, he's saying you have an anointing by the Holy Spirit so that in your heart, in your spirit, which translates to your thinking, you know the truth from error. You know what is right and what is wrong. You know a truth from a lie. That's what the Holy Spirit comes to give you. In Christ, 
we have the authority, the commission, the empowerment, and the qualifications to fulfill our mission. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 8, you know the verse, right? That Jesus said to his disciples when he was leaving, all power, well, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the, the, uh, the remotest parts of the earth. And then in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, in verse 7 and in verse 13, I'm going to read it from the screen because it's a different translation than we normally use. The Spirit's presence is shown in some way in each person for the good of all. In the same way, all of us, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether slaves or free, have been baptized into the one body by the same Spirit, and we all have been given the one Spirit to drink. So, you believe that's true? Okay, let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you can remember deliberately relying on the Holy Spirit for your power to minister? Deliberately relying on the Holy Spirit. When was that? Rhetorical, but you, can, you know in your mind. When was the last time you remember being so thirsty for the Holy Spirit? Parched, I need you, type thirsty. When was the last time that you got up in the morning and deliberately pleaded, Holy Spirit, bring my heart back into alignment with you? Fill and empower me, Lord, to do the work of this day, the work that you've called me to do. I don't know what that is, but you show me. Even the routine things, if that's all it is. Lord, let me thirst for your refreshing water so badly that I literally will not survive without drinking from your bubbling spring. You ever get up in the morning and pray that prayer? We should. When was the last time we sought the enabling power of the Spirit as a church body? How many of us truly have experienced the sons of Korah's lament in Psalm 42, which says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. How often in the last 30 days, the last month, have we cried out as David, my soul thirsts for you, Lord. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. That's Psalm 63, verse 1. How frequently do you and I find ourselves spiritually parched and we know where to go for the refreshment we simply just don't drink. You know, Jesus drank continually. Continually. Jesus had a passion for the word, every single word of the word. As a smicha rabbi, he had probably memorized the entire Hebrew Testament. I read, a modern, I read that a modern rabbi has leveled this criticism at Christianity. He said, quote, Christians like to speak of being disciples of Jesus, but they are ignorant 
How can they be like Jesus if they do not know Jesus? Any Christian who claims to be a disciple and does not read through the Gospels at least once a week is a liar, unquote. Whew. <laughs> now, that's a throwdown challenge if I ever heard one, isn't it? I mean, that's tough to read through the Gospels once a week. But you get his point. Jesus prayed in John 17. I gave them your word. The godless world hated them because of it, because they didn't join the world's ways just as I didn't join the world's ways. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, Lord, but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Make them holy, consecrated with the truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. I'm consecrating myself for their sake so that they'll be truth consecrated in their mission. I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. Listen, all I'm asking for here is for us to be honestly answering a few questions is the church of Jesus Christ, even our own church, in danger of drying up spiritually because we're failing, maybe even refusing to do ministry as the Spirit directs us? The Spirit. Are we instead looking to some other church's conviction or worse, our own personal opinions instead of discerning God's unchanging word to us here in Fayette. I don't care what they're doing in California. They're in a different sphere. They're in a different context. They're under a different kind of thing. What does God want to do here in Fayette? And here's the real watershed. How many of us would be in danger of carrying on as business as usual if the Holy Spirit were to take leave of us tomorrow? Would anything change at all? That's a scary one to think about. You see, these are the questions we need to address if we're serious about following the Master's ministry because undertaking the ministry of Christ, of the church, means understanding the ministry of Christ. And the first thing that we need to understand before we go any further with the other four is simply this. The power for ministry is the Holy Spirit, period. So let me close with this. A.J. Gordon, one of the founders of Gordon-Conwell Divinity School, once told about being out walking and looking across a field at a house. And beside the house was what looked like a man pumping a well furiously with one of those hand pumps, Right? And as Gordon watched, the man continued to pump at a tremendous rate of speed, and he seemed absolutely tireless in that, pumping on and on, up and down, up and down, up and down, without ever slowing in the slightest bit, much less stopping. And the water was flowing. It was a remarkable sight to him. And so Gordon started to walk toward it, and as he got closer, he could see that it was not a man at the pump at all. It was a wooden figure painted to look like a man. And the arm that was pumping so rapidly was actually hinged at the elbow and the hand was wired to the pump handle. 
And the water was pouring forth, but not because the figure was pumping the handle. You see, it was an artesian well, and the water was pumping the man. When you see a man or a woman who is at work for God and producing fruitful results, recognize right off the bat that it is the Holy Spirit working through him or her, not the person's own efforts that are giving the results. All any disciple has to do, all you have to do, all I have to do is keep our hand on the handle, right? Just as Jesus always did. And if he did it being the son of God, I'll ask you again, how much more must we let the Holy Spirit do the pumping? Let the water pump the man or the woman. So go and give him Jesus, would you? this week? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word of truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would recognize very clearly the source of our strength, which is the Spirit, and help us to hear his voice, discern his voice, follow his voice into what you want us to do in our particular context. For it's in Christ's name and for the kingdom's sake, I pray. Amen.